Friday, September 9th, it's the Just Baseball Show. I'm Arm Layton. He's Jack McMullen. And I'm really pumped about this episode, Jack, because one, and most importantly, we have Jeff Conine on, Mr. Marlin, a two-time All-Star, two-time World Series champ, and just an awesome guy that, you know, hosts Outside the Box with Jeff Conine, of course, with us as part of our Just Baseball Network. And man, it was a really fun conversation that we had with him for an hour uh, that I know people are really going to enjoy. Dude, it was an hour. Like, this is a guy that has embraced the podcast way of life. Oh, yeah. Where, like, you know, it's not, hey, man, I I have, like, 30. You might be able to push it to 35. It's like, you know what? Let's talk some ball, man. Let's roll up our sleeves and get to business. So it was a good, it was a jam-packed hour with Jeff Conine. And um, we got to his playing career. We got to his post-career thoughts. I was fascinated going in. I love talking to former players about, like, what happened after they were done. I was fascinated what he did, and and he had a great answer to that. Um, dude knows his stuff. We're lucky to have him as part of the Just Baseball Network. Uh, absolutely, and I'm just lucky to be able to to bounce stuff off of him and be able to talk to him. And and also, just he he he's a guy that really has come to love the podcast side of things too. And he loves to talk shop, as you can tell, and uh, just so much awesome insight cool era that he played in where it's all guys that we want to hear about that we know about that, you know, we just missed or saw the tail end of. So, you know, hearing him speak firsthand on guys like George Brett, but then also some of our favorite young players growing up that he got to see come up, you know, like a Ken Griffey or some of these other guys. I mean, it's really fun conversation, even a Randy Johnson and a Greg Maddox. Yeah. So I I was going to say when I think like basketball, like the golden age of basketball, nobody talks about the 2000s as the golden age of basketball, right? Like nobody does. It's the 80s with Magic and Bird, like, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And then you've got the 90s with Jordan and those guys. Right. And then it picked up again, you know, in this era with LeBron, with Durant. I love the 2000s with like Vince Carter, T-Mac, Allen Iverson. That's kind of how I feel about that stage of baseball. Like I want to hear as many things about Randy Johnson as humanly possible. And we got our Randy Johnson fix here. Absolutely. And even like the PED guys, like you talk about it from the lens of like Hall of Fame, it's a different story, but I want to hear about what these guys did on the baseball field. I want to hear about Bonds. He was a freak. Yeah, (laughs) I know. And then that's when we'll get into a little bit more next time. And we've talked a lot about Bonds on Outside the Box. And uh, we're going to do, and I mentioned at the end of the episode, but we're going to do a mailbag on Outside the Box with Jeff Conine that's available on all platforms as well. After you listen to this episode, if there's anything you want to ask him, uh, you can tweet it at us now at just BB media on Twitter. I will, you know, bookmark it and save them away. Um, but also we will be putting up like the mailbag graphic early next week for you to, uh, you know, fire away your questions. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Arm strong suit is organizational skills. So oh, yeah, be great absolutely. about stockpiling those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure. Hey, here's the thing. My organization skills stink, but my Twitter skills are great. 
One's got to give. I think Twitter skills take precedent. I will be all over it, but I am the least organized guy you will ever find. And fortunately, you can't see my closet. You can't see the rest of my room. We'll pretend it's very organized right now. Uh, But one thing I am not, one thing I am not, Jack, is a liar. Is a liar. I am not a liar. Doug Gottlieb is a liar. And uh, we, we talked about this, man, because we came out and we said, we're like, this is a load of crap. When Doug Gottlieb, and for those who might not know, uh, I, I'm not going to give like Doug Gottlieb like a background. I don't really know who he is in terms of like his whole back. I know you do. Yeah, I'll leave that to you. But Doug Gottlieb, was it on a radio show that he said? He reported this, right? He tweeted it. He just, just tweeted, tweeted it. it out of okay. nowhere. From so the for, those, for those who might have missed our episode, Doug, this was maybe months ago, right? When Freddie Freeman went back to Atlanta, there was a lot of emotions. There was a lot of things going on. I'm, I'm sure there was a lot that he had to just get through. He talked about it more recently, how it was the closure that he needed, but there was nothing there. He never said anything about, you know, anything that corroborated the report from Doug Gottlieb, which was that Casey Close, Freddie Freeman's agent, who was let go. So of course it kind of helped the narrative a little bit, withheld the Braves' best offer from Freddie Freeman because it was less than the Dodgers' offer, and he knew that Freddie Freeman might take it, which would mean less money for Casey Close, essentially, is what that was implying. Um, yeah, it just wasn't true. And uh, Casey Close was very quick to, you know, again, one of the most successful agents out there, was very quick to say, this is not true at all, and I'm, I will go under oath and talk about it. Very funny doesn't take too long. And Doug Gottlieb all of a sudden walks it back and says, "Never mind, I, I didn't say that. Or I'm sorry, never mind. It wasn't true. Whatever it was. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what his defense was. Never mind. Was, I'm sorry. It was I fucked up. It was never mind. Uh, I'm sorry. I lied. He pretty much said that in like the notes app apology. This is the first paragraph of college basketball career. If you Wikipedia Doug Gottlieb. After signing a national letter of intent with Notre Dame, Gottlieb was their starting point guard during the 95-96 college basketball season, starting all but the first four games and leading the team with assists as well as steals and minutes played. Gottlieb was widely known at this time for his efficient ball handling skills. He left Notre Dame after an incident in which he stole a classmate's credit card and used it to charge multiple purchases. Gottlieb transferred from the Notre Dame program as a result of the incident. Problem child. There we go. 18-year-old. Stupid shit. You can bounce back from that. Yeah. Um, we are both Syracuse alumni. He and Jim Beheim hate each other. Oh. And I know that Jim Beheim is not the, the warmest person. I know that, you know, there are some flaws to his godlike state, uh, regardless if, uh, if anybody in central New York tells you otherwise. Um, but Doug Gottlieb, any chance he gets to take a shot at, you know, below the belt on Jim Beheim, he does it, which is which just is, weird. It's he's weird because I mean, the Beheim family is one of the most, like, again, I, I have my issues with the way Jim is with the media, but they're one of the most charitable, you know, people you'll ever find and and do things right for the most part. Yeah, like, just being around like the Bay, being around Syracuse basketball, the way that we were and like, you know, I got to, I got to work with a lot of his assistants and things like that. Um, you know, the Bayheims are a very charitable family. Like they are good people. Like Jim does not treat media with respect all the time, but the Bayheims are good people. So a lot of good people that don't treat media with respect to be honest. Exactly. Like- exactly. And Gottlieb's just like, back you. Um, but Doug Gottlieb, like he is the type to just fire from the hip. And this one burns you especially when you tweet something like, 
hey, they withheld their final offer from Freddie Freeman because Casey Close thought he was going to get more money from the cut. I mean, that's um, the worst thing you can say about an agent. It's correct. literally the worst possible thing. You could say an agent is not going to do best by his players. Like he's literally saying he screwed over, you know, one of his biggest clients. And Close is, is so big and has made so much. This is what we talked about on the episode. He's yes. made so much money. What's What's the difference of his percentage of 50 million, whatever that the presumptive difference would have been in the Dodgers best offer and the Braves best offer close. Isn't risking at all for a couple extra million in commission. He's brought in hundreds of million in commission already. Dude, I promise you, he can still send his great, great grandkid to an Ivy league school without any financial aid. I promise you Casey close can do that right now. Yeah. The Freddie Freeman contract means nothing for him financially in the long run. Also what I've heard is Casey Close and Scott Boris, like Boris is number one in terms of, you know, super agent. Yeah, no one's taught, yeah. Casey Close is number two. Yeah. The difference in personality between Scott Boris and Casey Close, I heard could not be more different. Like Casey Close is a nice, welcoming guy. Like, you know, he he is, he's, I don't want to say wholesome, but like, he is the guy that like you feel like you can genuinely trust. But even if he told me Scott Boris did this, I would have been like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Correct. Because it doesn't matter to them. Doug Gottlieb is a guy that has always hunted controversy. He hunted controversy and he got fucked by it. And I'm so happy that he got fucked by it. So, and and I'm glad because this kind of, Closes the book on the Freeman situation in Atlanta, yeah, dude, which like, we just suck it up. You're in LA. And you know, and he has, he has, and he talked about it. He's like, it gave me the closure I needed. And, and he's really been great since then. Right. I, he worked through it and he's good. Uh, but now this kind of puts this whole thing to, to bed. But what's so funny is, you know, Gottlieb could have, could have really been put in the dirt, like to the amount of money that he could have been sued for. Cause Casey close could really say that it, it impacts his career and it would be for almost every penny that, that Gottlieb owns based on, you know, what we know about, about defamation and, and, and what that implies and what that can do to him. So I, I just imagine a Doug Gottlieb, like on his hands and knees, like, please don't sue me. Like, please drop the case. I'll issue whatever you can write up the, the apology and the retraction. I'll do whatever you want. Um, and you know, it's just kind of funny. Uh, I, and I don't like dancing on people's graves again. We're, we don't like to, to, to be harsh on, especially other people in the media, but if you're going to be intentionally, you know, intentionally spread misinformation and attack people's character, um, that's where you lose my, my respect and benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to make fun of you and have fun with it. So that's yes. what we're doing right here. Yes, uh, we're dancing on his grave, and uh, it, it's a good time. <laughs> yeah, we're shimmying a little bit. Anything else? I don't think so. Let's get to Jeff Conine. Here is Mr. Marlin, Jeff Conine, and just an awesome conversation. Hope you enjoy. Jeff Conine, uh, our advisor at Just Baseball and the host with me of Outside the Box with Jeff Conine. I wanted to bring it over to the Just Baseball show and give everybody an opportunity that may not be aware of all of the insight and everything you offer on Outside the Box to hear a little bit from you here. We're going to talk everything from history and your career to what's going on in the modern game, what's going on right now. Niner, thanks so much for taking the time. Pleasure. So, I mean, we could detail everything Niner's done in his career. It's on our site as well in the About Us because we're really lucky to have you as one of our advisors, but two-time All-Star, two-time World Champion, also an All-Star MVP despite pinch hitting in that game, which we'll, we'll get to a little bit. Uh, was it 18 full seasons? 
or or 19 parts of 19 seasons. I mean, uh, if you look at the numbers, you know, when I first got called up was 1990. When I retired was 2007. So people say 17 years. But when you look at actual Major League service time, it was about 15 and a half. You didn't you weren't quite a victim of service time manipulation back then. Was that was that as much of a thing back then? No, not at all. Not at all. They they didn't care about starting the clock and, you know, timed it out to perfectly on certain days. Remember when Giancarlo Stanton was uh, it was June 22nd was his day. That's that's when the, the clock started. So that's when we get that's when he got called up. Yeah, Jeff, you weren't a victim of the Super 2. That that's tough. Do you well, feel left out? I mean, of the Super I was I, I think well, no. I was too early for that. Um actually, I don't know if that was the 94 strike. Uh, that might've affected me, but I signed a, a multi-year deal during that strike. So I, I kind of never went through the arbitra- arbitration process. Yeah. You had your, your, your own kind of delay or, or thing in the way it wasn't service time. It was that hall of fame first baseman though, at the time, right. With George Brett anchoring first base when, when you were mashing through the, the system with the Royals and, uh, I, I know you've talked about it on Outside the Box, so I don't know if you're repeating some of the stories you've told there. Uh, I'm going to tee you up for some of my favorite stories of yours because there's just so many things that we could hit on here. But I think one of the more more underrated aspects of your career and your experiences, because everyone wants to talk about the World Series and, and both of them, of course, and the All-Star Games, and those are all really fun things, and I'm excited to get to it. But how about coming up to that Royals team that had George Brett uh, and also Bo Jackson, someone that you got to cross paths with, with a lot of other really notable players uh, and, and legends, uh, you know, that that we are really eager to hear about. Yeah, you know, when you first get called up um, in any organization that that you come up with is exciting. But, uh, you know, that was the heyday of the Royals. They, they won the World Series in 85. Uh, they weren't too far removed from that. And they still had some of those players left. Uh, like you said, George. Brett at first base, uh, Frank White at second base. Uh, you got Kevin Seitzer at, at third, who won a batting title, I think. Um, you got uh, Danny Tartable out and right. You got uh, Willie Wilson in center. Uh, you know, Bob Boone behind the plate. Uh, I know I'm dating myself there, but Bob Boone was catching for that first team that I got called up for. And uh, like you said, Bo Jackson. I mean, um, you know, we still talk him, talk about him to this day for a reason, uh, because he is the most uh, exceptional electrifying athlete uh, I've ever been around and I've ever seen play any sport. So um, there's a reason we're still talking about him and, and it's, it's all true. Jeff, I'm curious, you know, how freeing it was because I'm around a lot of these AAA guys and, you know, I'll see them whether they be in Indianapolis with me or with opponents that are just waiting for that chance to crack through. And obviously AAA, it is directly underneath what's going on on the 26 man or 28 man roster here. And Aram mentioned, you know, you ran into some traffic in Kansas city, you play 162 games in 1993. So you get new digs, you go to Florida and you play 162. You have a 750 OPS and then you bust out a 900 OPS the next two years. How freeing was that for you to have no traffic in front of you and get that new setting and say, okay, it's go time. My career can start in earnest now. Well, I think it was a little easier uh, as far as comfort level with a brand new team. You know, you know, there's really not much of a minor league system that's been developed. Uh, We're kind of cast offs from every other organization. So we're all in this together as trying to find your way in the big leagues. And, you know, um, I was very fortunate. I, I didn't have that great of a spring training that year. Uh, I was kind of battling with Monty Ferris. Uh, and I remember that name from Oklahoma State, I believe. He was a, 
super stud college player, got picked off the roster from the Texas Rangers. And he actually had a better spring than I did. But I don't know, I think uh, Renee Latchman, uh, our manager then, and, and the front office staff just saw something in me that that wanted to give me a shot. And, you know, it's all about, you know, we say that saying, it's, it's hard to get to the big leagues, but it's even more difficult to stay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I worked hard to get there and, and I did not want to relinquish that position for any amount of games that year. And I think Ray Latchman approached me about a few days off and I said, nope, I'm not coming out of the lineup. So he gave me uh, a chance to play all 162. Love that. How do you balance that? You know, you want to push, you want to play to the best of your ability, but you also don't want to press. It's like push versus press. And that's always something that I'm fascinated by because you can catch yourself just Maybe you you go through a natural rough patch in baseball like everybody does, and then you start to try to make adjustments and you start to try to do different things. And I mean, at the plate, we've talked about it. You were you were very simple uh, and kind of boiled it down as, as simple as you could and repeated all of your moves and and had it down to a science that worked for you. And clearly, it worked. That's how you played for so long. Uh, but through that first season, before really you know, hitting that next gear. What do you think allowed you to to hit the next gear the year after that? And uh, how did you avoid maybe pressing at points? in that rookie season, which it was a solid, solid rookie season, but still not even close to to what you did in your all-star years shortly after. Yeah. You know, you're finding your way. You're finding what works. Uh, I'd never played that many games in a season before. Um, And being given that opportunity to do so, I I don't know what my average was uh, in September. You know, obviously I might've gotten tired and fallen off at the end, but um, they allowed me to get, my feet underneath me and find out my routine that works. And like you said, it's all about maximizing your streaks and minimizing your slumps. So of course I went through slumps during that year. We had uh, some great people around uh, at that time. Harvey Dorfman was on staff with the Marlins uh, who wrote the mental game of baseball, which is, you know, was my Bible at the time as well of a lot of other people. I, I refer to that book a lot. Uh, I've given it to my son, Griffin. I tell everyone that that is coming into the game that they should read that book. And I had the guy that wrote it at my disposal every single day. So that really helped me kind of uh, navigate it mentally, which uh, I think is the most difficult part once you get there, because everyone that makes the big leagues initially is talented enough to make to the big leagues. That's that's why they're there. Yeah. Uh, So the other, you know, the above the neck is what takes over and differentiates the player that stays for a long time and has success, uh, the guy that fizzles out and, and can't make it. It's all about the brain. So I was very fortunate to have some good people around and got my routine down and, and got comfortable quickly. So I, I'm fascinated by life after baseball and being a baseball dad in the position that you're in. You already mentioned Griffin, and I will finish you know, talking about the playing days of Jeff Conine as well. I know Arm wants to hit on the all-star game. Uh, and things like that. I guess my big question, you bring up the mental side. When did the season slow down for you? Like at what point in your career do you feel like you could navigate the season and whether you had a a family, like, you know, wife and kids that you were working with, you know, during a baseball season, um, when did you feel like baseball season was manageable for you? Um, You mean at what point in my career? Yeah. You know, um, Early on, you know, we got married after my first year in uh, in the big leagues in 93. Uh, we had our first child uh, after the 95 season. So you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff going on with parenthood and and, and marriage and life. Uh, but I, w- I was always really good at leaving it at the ballpark, no matter what I did that night, whatever I did at the ballpark. 
when I left that gate to go home, that's when family life started and, and kids started. So um, I was always really cognizant of the fact that I never wanted to bring it home. You know, my kids didn't care if I went 0 for 4 or 4 strikeouts or 4 for 4 with 4 home runs. You know, they just, they wanted to play and, and, and that was it. So they didn't even realize my baseball career until long after I retired. So, yeah, um, I think I made that differentiation early and, and it really helped. I mean, that, that's a big separator. You talk about the mental side of it and there's so many things that can, can impede a, a player's just ability to kind of get through the season. And, and we've seen it. I know this is something we've talked about as well in the past on outside the box and very excited for, for you to provide this perspective because you talk about like, you know, things that could be affecting you in your personal life or having, you know, your personal life under control, like you did and having a system that works for you and leaving it at the field, but also the environment that you play in and the environment that you're living in. How does it affect just your overall well-being? We look at these guys, we only know them as they're on the baseball field and then disregard usually what, what they are off the field. 99% of their life is off the field for the most part, especially, you know, considering you only play a few hours a day on that baseball field. And we've seen some guys, especially in the big markets. And that's why I wanted to bring this up because I loved your thoughts on this, you know, on outside the box, which I mean, Joey Gallo is a perfect example. I'm not going to pretend to know, and we were not going to speculate what was going on in his head when he was in New York, but it's very, pretty clear, very much struggled in New York. It's a tough environment for him. He was very clear about that. He didn't even want to go outside in New York because it was so difficult. We've seen it now with Isaiah Connor Falefa, who's been really good over the last couple of games, but another guy that has really been mentally impacted by the booing and, and just the harassment that can come from very passionate or maybe overly passionate fan bases. Uh, that's the area I want to really specifically hit on with you here because you've played all over. You've talked about Philly and, and how you were a little nervous before Philly. And then it ended up being a little bit more manageable than you thought, but how much does the booing and you know, the, when you're struggling as a player, how much does that, you know, just pressure that's being placed on passionate fans. How much can that mount on a player? Uh, it depends on if you believe in that word pressure and if you actually let it get to and concentrate on it, because I've always believed pressure is just a made up word. What is pressure? Can you quantify it? Can you tell me what pressure is, what it means? You know, when I go out on that, that line, if there's nobody in the stands, does that mean there's no pressure because nobody's watching and no one's yelling at me? I still have to do the exact same job as if there are 50,000 fans in the stands. So my job is to see the ball, hit the ball, play the best of my ability, make plays in the field, run the bases uh, with my baseball IQ, with my baseball knowledge. And if I make a mistake with nobody in the stands, what, does that mean it's okay there, that, that, that mistake didn't happen? Well, the mistake happens and then people start booing. Now I'm thinking about the mistake and I'm worried about fans that are starting to boo me. So that all comes down and affects your performance, you know, and I get it. I get it. There are big games, uh, games that are much more meaningful than other games, World Series games, playoff games, all-star games, first place, whatever games you want to talk about. But the best players, the best players treat those games just like any other game. And those are the guys that really thrive and survive and make long careers out of baseball. When you succumb to, hey, I can't play in New York because the people yell at me, then, I mean, you're screwed because there are a lot of markets. People are going to yell at you a lot. Yeah. And if that affects you, then uh, you're, you're not going to last very long. So, Jeff, we had fun with the Alec Bohm thing when it happened in, uh, in April or May. And that was a guy that um, decided to be accountable for what he said 
Um, and obviously you can't get away with anything now with uh, all the cameras around. You got an eight camera, 10 camera broadcast uh, on NBC Sports Philadelphia. But Alec Bohm obviously did not get away with expressing his um, his distaste for the Phillies fan base. Um, and as soon as he admitted his flaw in that um, and kind of took ownership of that, it feels like he's been more comfortable in Philly and Phillies embraced him. So, you know, whether it was pressure or not, I actually just think it was a, a lack of comfortability. Now that he's more comfortable, do you feel like in those big markets that are quote unquote hard to play in, if you're just accountable and you show up, do your work every day, it's got to be easy enough to play in those markets, right? Well, that's what, you know, Arm and I um, broached this subject and we talked about playing in Philadelphia. And I got texts from all my ex-teammates saying, how tough it is to play in Philly, how much you're going to hate it because the fans are terrible. The media is brutal, blah, blah, blah. And uh, honestly, I was kind of nervous getting in there for my first game. And, and, you know, my first game I'm playing right field and um, you know, I get a play first inning ground ball to third base and I do my job. I run over there to back up the throw just in case there's an overthrow. I hustle over three out or the got the out. I peel back off, go back out to my position. And I hear, I just got my head down. I hear all this clapping going on. All this clapping, I'm like, what is what's going on? Is there someone on the screen or something? I look up and they're all clapping for me. They're standing up looking at me, clapping. And I kind of looked up and they're like, that away, Conine. Bobby, your brain never did that shit. <laughs> and I was like, what shit? Like, I've just backed up a base, but that you know, just set the, the chain of motion. So next night, I think I had a man on, on third base and uh, one out and I popped the ball up. Well, my job is to get that guy in, right? So I slam my bat down and I'm pissed. I go to first base, ball's caught and I'm screaming. I want to throw my helmet. I'm about to go in the dugout. And I'm like, oh, here they come. They're going to boo me now. And this guy just, that's okay, Conan, get him next time. And I'm like, that's something I never thought I'd hear of a Phillies fan after I didn't do my job. Well, a good friend of mine lives in Philly and he was there and he's like, Dude, do you see? Because I we talked about this, and he goes, "They're gonna love you because you care. You show that you care, and you play the game hard, and you play the game right. That's all they care about. They want to see that kind of mentality from their ball players that go out and put that uniform on. You know, you know, I played with Pat Burrow. Pat Burrow was a great guy, great baseball player. You know, one of a, a awesome teammate, but his laid back persona never sit well with the Philly faithful because. He just looked like he didn't care and wasn't trying. He was, he was trying, but just the way his body language was, they felt that he didn't care. And uh, they didn't go after that very well. And, you know, then you got uh, Aaron Rowan, who goes after that ball in center field, smashes face first, breaks his nose. That guy could do no wrong. He never will have to buy a meal in Philadelphia for the rest of his life. Yeah. From that one play. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is amazing. And, and that is something that I, I think is a really good point because you look at Cassianos and of course it was frustrating because they paid him big money and he struggled. Um, but also he has that laid back nature to his game as well, where it, it almost looks like he's nonchalant sometimes. And I'm sure he cares and I'm sure he plays hard. And, uh, and we know he's trying his best. He's actually been really good and just at the IL, but it's been really solid in the second half, but he has that same kind of laid back approach that if he's not doing well, you're like, all right, come on now. This is, this is pretty frustrating uh, to watch, but I want to go back to now your beginning with the Marlins. Then we'll get to the, you know, the all-star appearances. But I think for, for those listening, a lot of the people that might be listening to the podcast, you know, the inception of the Marlins may, may predate them. It predates us. We were born in 97. Uh, Marlins were created in, in 93. Uh, yeah. There's, 
talk about potentially we might see expansion in baseball. Who knows? But, you know, other than the Washington Nationals, which is more of a relocation, we, we haven't really seen like a team added. Um, and, and I think it's pretty crazy to, to also see just, you know, what that process is like. And you join a team. I know you're excited for the playing opportunity. And that was the number one thing. Uh, but when you get sent over to the Marlins to the expansion draft, I mean, you're joining a team that's playing in a football stadium that you, you talk about how you guys kind of consider yourselves as, as outcasts to a degree, like cast offs, I guess would be the better word. Uh, like, how was that process of you're joining a new franchise, have no idea what to expect. They play in a football stadium. The team is cast offs, like you said. Like, what is your thought process there? And, and what is the expectation after the first year and then beyond that? Well, that's just it. You know, we call it the name tag spring training because uh, we're all pretty young. There are a few established veterans, you know, I got Dave Magadan and Charlie Huff and Benito Santiago that had time, significant time and, and significant careers with other organizations. But a lot of guys were just kind of newbies, uh, just had gotten called up a little bit of major league service time and they were left unprotected. And, you know, for me, who had just gotten called up at the Royals for a couple of weeks, I didn't know anybody. So I didn't know any of these guys uh, other than the few that I played against in the Meyer League. So, um, you know, obviously I was nervous. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, the spring training stadium in Melbourne wasn't even finished yet. By the time we got there, we had to play in the backfields. We had to play at the Coco Expo uh, beat up old stadium for our first uh, spring training. And uh, it was wild. I mean, I thought, you know, he got down to the back then it was Joe Robbie Stadium. He got down to Joe Robbie and looked at the field and I thought it was fine. I thought it was great. I think whatever they did to it, you know, made it look like a, a baseball field. And I was grateful for my opportunity to play in the big leagues. And that's how I looked at it. I looked at it more as, listen, man, this is your time to cement yourself into this game and, and take advantage of the opportunity that I was given, you know, and I'm not going to lie saying that uh, I was begging for Colorado because, uh, <laughs> As you know, I love hitting in that place. And oh, yeah. Minor well, leagues. And I just love Colorado, you know, and they played in a football stadium, too. Uh, they played at Mile High, which is uh, cavernous compared to uh, Joe Robbie. Um, but all in all, you know, uh, we didn't lose 100 games. That was that was uh, saying something. I think we we're 64, yeah. 98. Nice. Uh, Brian Harvey saved 46 games that year, which is, I think, the highest percentage of saves of a team's win. I don't know if it's still the record, but it was back then. And, um, you know, we had some, uh, you know, emerging players that, that would go forward and build on a little bit with the Marlins. Jack, I have a question for you real quick, yes. actually. What yes. do you think Niners OPS was in between mile high and course combined? So just in Colorado, have, have so, I told you this? Have we gone over this? So I, I listened to the outside of the box where you guys started to talk about it. And, and I thought you brought up a great point and it didn't really click until you brought it up, Jeff. And that's that. Coors is a great singles ballpark because everybody's playing so deep. So I'd say, uh, I'd say the batting average is really high. Is the oh, OPS, yeah. is the OPS right around a thousand? The OPS is 1250. Dude. Uh, the batting average is 415. Okay. And that yeah. is in, that is in over 140, 130 plate appearances. How about that? Um, so, so yeah, another one, um, you were in Omaha in minor league ball as well. And, you know, the ball doesn't fly there like it does uh, Coors, but you played at Rosenblatt, right? You got to call Rosenblatt your home ballpark. Yeah. What were, yep. what were the coolest ballparks you played in, whether it be minor league baseball or major league baseball? Um, I will say there's some memorable ones. If you, if you want to call them cool or not, um, they were awful, but, but 
I got to play an old Tiger Stadium. You know, that place okay. was a complete disaster. But, you know, growing up, you watch the the highlights of the 84 World Series and Reggie Jackson going over the roof and Mickey Mantle hitting the furthest ball ever at Tiger Stadium. You know, you got those memories of of what it was like and I got to live it, you know, and then, uh, you know, you got the kingdom and I came in, a, I came up in a really cool era where I got to play in all the old ballparks and then got to play in all the new ones that when they tore all the old ones down. So I think I got to play in like 43 or 44 wow. different baseball parks. Yeah. I was a couple off the record. I think McGriff had 46 or 47. Um, but I came in at a great time. You know, I missed, I, I missed old Comiskey by like, a road trip when I first got called up and I never got to play in um, Milwaukee, uh, the old Milwaukee County Stadium. Oh, I yeah, played yeah, in that yeah. one. So I think those are the only two that I missed. I would have had 46. I would have had just about all of them. Um, but, you know, it, it was cool. I love, obviously love Coors Field. Um, you know, it's like that golf course uh, and you go out and you play it and you could play uh, Augusta and you shoot 120 and they're like, yeah, it's okay. But if you go to uh, whatever uh, Seminole here in Florida and shoot 78, you're like, that's going to be my favorite golf course of all time. Yeah. The Um, atmosphere is also awesome at Coors though. Uh, No, it is. I mean, I love, I love Denver. I love Coors regardless of batting average there or not, you know, I would have enjoyed playing there. Um, Stadiums. I didn't really like play Dodger stadium to me. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get why all the hype for Dodger stadium. It was very difficult to play as a defender because Back then, the the home plate was so far from the stands and it sloped. So yeah. the pitch is going through the stands and the oh. people as it's going to the plate. So it's really hard to pick up the ball. Um, and just that depth perception was always messed up. And the, the field was nice. Uh, the grass was nice. The clubhouse was not very good. Um, and I thought the stadium was kind of ugly, actually, with all the faded seats and everything like that. They might have changed it out uh, since then. But um <laughs> But then you got uh, Qualcomm was a football stadium. Yeah. That was so-so, but Petco comes in and it's phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Uh, San Francisco, you got Candlestick, which was a nightmare to play in. Mm-hmm. And then you got, I don't know what it's called now, but... Uh, Oracle, was, yeah. at and was, yeah. The yeah, time. I mean, it was gorgeous, you know? Oh, that's These one of my favorites. Phenomenal. Uh, then you got uh, the, the mausoleum they call the Kingdom, and then uh, Safeco comes in and it's another beautiful, ridiculously awesome stadium. I mean... It was really cool being able to see, you know, kind of the, the good and the bad of all these cities. Yeah. Of the stadium still standing, which is the least favorite that you had to go play in? Don't say Fenway. You can't. Okay, I won't. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> all right. Next question. Love that answer, though. Uh, Fenway for a fan, great. I don't blame you as, as a player. Don't, can't you, like, hit your head on the dugout? Isn't that, like, isn't that a thing? Or is that smoke, well that yes, that one and uh old Tiger Stadium. If you stood up in the dugout too fast, you'd smash your head because and you couldn't fit it, the whole team couldn't fit in the dugout. There were guys up on the steps on like Gatorade coolers because I don't know if they were a lot smaller back then or they didn't have as many people, but we got big dudes and no, we couldn't all fit on the on the bench at one time. I want to get to the all-star game. Uh, well, bo- both of them, but of course it, you, we, we talked about this a lot. You, you didn't get the opportunity to get in on your first all-star game. Right. And um, that was something that I'm sure was bittersweet because you're probably just honored to even be named to, to an all-star game, but also you, you want to get in there. Right. Um, 
How did you manage not getting in that first game? And then, you know, you finally come off the bench in the second game. Talk about not pressing and not, and, you know, pressure being, you know, kind of this ambiguous term. Well, if pressure were real, I think that would be the greatest example. After waiting a game in three quarters, you finally get an AB uh, and, and the rest is history there. I'll let you tell that story. But you know, how'd you manage that first game not playing and then getting back there and finally getting that AB? Yeah. Um, you know, first experience wasn't, I was in awe. You know, I'm like uh, literally uh, a year and a half in the big leagues and you walk into that locker room and you see the names that are on those jerseys and, and how crazy it is to think that you are considered um, an equal to go into that locker room and, and be part of an all-star team uh, was pretty crazy. So I was so giddy just being there, you know, yeah, it, it, after the game was over, it stunk that I, I wasn't able to get into that game. And it was one of the f- most phenomenal games uh, at the very end. Uh, you know, I think Tony Gwynn scored the winning run in the ninth inning. Uh, it was an awesome game. <laughs> Um, so I was, I was a fan, you know, I'm sitting there on the baseball, on the bench, watching it as a fan, I had the best seat in the house as a fan. And yeah, I was bummed. I didn't get out. I got all the questions afterwards, especially when I got back to Florida. Oh my God, you didn't get in to the game. We hate, um, uh, Jim Fregosi, you know, it was a whole big campaign of hate when he, I think we played him right after the all-star break too. And, uh, the fans are booing him and everything. And (laughs) I I had no animosity toward Jim Fregosi. I knew that. Um, if the situation would have come up, I, I could have made it in the game, but it didn't. So fast forward the next year, we got uh, Philippe Alou as the manager, and, and he went through that same situation that I went in. He went was named to an all-star team and didn't get to play one time. So he's like, that's not going to happen uh, when I'm managing. Everyone's going to get into the game at, at some capacity. So, you know, I didn't start, but uh, my name gets called in the, in the top of the seventh to bat for Ron Gant. And Fred McGriff is at the plate with two outs and he ends up striking out. So I go back to the dugout and I got a lot of time to think about it, but I'm watching who's warming up and uh, Steve Ontiveros from Oakland and I'd never faced him. So, you know, Matt Williams is standing right there and they play each other in the, whatever the Bay series uh, back then, I think before the season starts, like the end of the spring training, they played the Bay series and he knew Steve Ontiveros and had faced him. And I just gave him, he gave me a little scouting report. He goes, Hey man, he loves his cutter. He'll throw that cutter right away, throws his cutter. It's a good one, you know, and his other stuff is so-so. Just look for the cutter. I'm like, all right. So that's what I'm talking about, pressure, right? When when I'm focused, when you're focused on the task at hand, what you're really focusing on doing, what you're trying to accomplish, you don't have room for all that other stuff to flood back in. So when I got in the box, I'm like, all right, I'm looking for a cutter. I'm going to take the first pitch, see what he's got. And he throws me a cutter, sure enough. And it was a pretty good one. It was high. I'm like, all right, one and oh. So I'm like, I step out. I'm like, I think I'm going to take another one. And I'm like, and then I change. I'm like, before I step back, I'm like, no, you know what? He might throw me something good. I've seen one already. I'm going to look for it again. Uh, he might throw me something good, something I can handle. And boom, I saw it and I reacted to it. That was it. There we go. And you, when you won MVP, you, you, you get a, a really nice car, right? Yeah, yeah, our super nice car, super duper that's nice what they, car. That's what they do, right? They give you. That's what they do now, right? You get the yeah now, yeah now, and you get like lots of money and cars and everything. Well, back then, you get a high they, five. That and they donated an Astro van to. It was, I mean, obviously Special Olympics was the beneficiary, but you know it was in my name that Chevrolet donated an Astro van, and then like two years later, someone's getting handed the keys to a briny, uh, shan, uh 
<laughs> brand new shiny Corvette. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second, man. Yeah. And they yeah. probably still donated the van to the Special Olympics. Yeah, of course. But right. Especially year three in the show. You want the Corvette. If it, if it was yeah. like year 10 or 11, you'd be okay. But year three. I wanted that car so bad. Man, I'm sorry. Uh, but <laughs> That's all right. So that happened in uh, that happened in 95. Um, you call it a career at the end of the 2007 season. What was 2008 like? Because obviously, you know, you're a guy who, who was playing baseball his entire life. Your first year not playing baseball, how shell-shocked were you? Like, how did you fill your days? You know what? It wasn't um, – my contract was structured uh, in 2006 that if I got a certain number of plate appearances, then 2007 would automatically kick in. So I knew if that happened, 2007, either or, if I didn't get my plate appearances or I did, 06 would have been my last year or 07 would totally be my last year if that actually kicked in. And I was ready. I was ready to go. Um, it was odd just because during spring training, you know, I leave for spring. Well, uh, we live in Florida, so I didn't have to go very far. Um, but I always had spring training. So it was like, wow, February 15th, I'm at home. March 15th, I'm at home. Easter, I'm at home. Mother's Day, I'm at home. Father's Day, I'm at home. Yeah, all those things were strange, but I relished the fact that I was home. I got to be with the kids at the family when all that was going on because I was ready. I was totally ready. I get to walk out on my own terms. I got to hang up the jersey. I didn't have someone rip it off my back. Um, and that first year back, I, I uh, decided to train and do the Ironman. So I was I was busy doing that. So. Yeah, uh, briefly on that before uh, we, we get to a couple more things. You can see it right there. That's the jersey. Yeah, yeah there's oh, yeah. the Iron Man jersey over there. I, I, I still to this day will never actually believe that it's possible to complete an Iron Man unless I watch you actually do it. So I still don't believe you actually did it. I feel like you cut a corner somewhere there because yeah. what, what is it again? It's, can you say how many, what it is on land, water, and then bike? Swims first, 2.4 mile swim. 112 mile bike and then a full marathon, 26.2. I and couldn't do no, I couldn't do one yeah. leg of that in 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 a week. No, <laughs> I, and there was no like Rosie Ruiz type thing going on here. Like you didn't subway any of this. I wish I could have, but I didn't know. Uh and it was, you know, it was insane. Um I remember my first swim, uh, you know, at a training program, and my first swim was a 500 meter swim right here in Weston at a pool. And after 25 meters, I was hanging on the side of the ed edge of the pool thinking, Oh my God, I have to swim over 4,000 meters to complete in the ocean. By the way, I can't like get tired and hang on the edge of the pool or the lane line. I have to swim or drown. So uh, that was the most fearful. Um, everyone says, Oh my God, that must've been the worst. It really wasn't because it's only 10% of your day, you know? So once you get through the swim, well, you got a nightmarish bike uh, in the big island, very windy and very hilly. And then, of course, at the very end, it's you got to run a full marathon after doing all that other stuff. I, I honestly like would have if they pitched that idea, I'd be like, nobody can actually do that. You're going to have a competition that's not humanly possible. It blows my mind that not only yourself, but but a lot of people uh, finish it. It's a small portion of our population, but more people than I would think could possibly do that. Uh, but Hitting a baseball, I still would say, is the hardest thing to do in sports. And, you know, you were able to do that at a very high level against some of the best to ever do it. We've talked about facing Mariano. We've talked about facing, you know, some of the more dominant pitchers that you were able to face. I mean, you've 
seen how many Hall of Famers, dozens and dozens and dozens, uh, some more difficult for you than others. Uh, what you have not had the chance to face was probably a good thing is Jacob deGrom. Um, and we were talking a little bit before we recorded about how Jacob deGrom is just, I, I feel like something we almost have never seen. From the VLO perspective, he literally is something we've never seen from a starter, but stuff-wise, also just insane. I want to broach this into like a, a larger conversation about where the game is at today and, and, and hitting in general, but I want to start specifically with deGrom and in your experience, obviously you haven't gotten in the box against him, but you can relate to it more than any of us can or anybody listening to this can. What is he doing on the mound and, and how unique is it compared to anything you even saw in your 20 years in professional baseball? Well, for one, you know, we had a handful of pitchers, not maybe not even a handful, like a break 100 miles an hour when I played. You know, if you broke 95, you were something special. Um, you know, there were a few that, uh, right to the tail end, the guy from the, the tigers that was around forever. Um, Zumaya. yeah, Zumaya, Zumaya. Zumaya. was, yeah. you know, one of those was. aberration guys. You're like, Oh my God, triple digits was crazy. Uh, Billy Koch, the closer for Toronto was in the, the low one hundreds pretty consistently. Rob Nen, the guy that I played with was 98 plus, um, but other than that, I mean, there, it was so few and far between to face that kind of velo that, um, you know, nowadays everybody out of a bullpen throws 95 miles an hour. Everyone. It's crazy how everybody can throw 95 plus. When I first broke in the league, major league average fastball was about 89 miles an hour. And I think last year I saw it was 93.7 was average major league fastball. So you're talking five miles an hour. That is a significant difference when you're standing at the plate. For me, watching 90 compared to 95, that was light years apart. Now you're going from, you know, 95 to 100, even 103, 104, some of these guys are throwing. It's it's pretty mind-boggling. So when you look at DeGrom and the purity of his mechanics, uh, which allows him to place the ball where he wants to, I mean, it's not, it's a very smooth delivery for what is coming out of his hand. I mean, it's insane. Uh, the arm speed, the hand speed, the the wrist snap when he breaks off that slider. It's, it's uh, you know, a, a generational talent. I just wish, you know, when you go for comparison's sake, he's got to stay on the mound. You know, it's um, – and you understand how the arm just can't take that kind of stress the way it used to. These guys could pitch – you know, nowadays a, a workhorse is 200 innings. Like if you break 200 innings, man, wow, that's like – yeah. Very few in the league get to do that. When I played, you had guys throwing 280, 270, 280, 290 innings. And back further from me, it was 300 was like the benchmark. You had guys throwing 320, 330, you know, making 38, 40 starts. That's that's even more mind-boggling to me that 200 is now the benchmark. And pitch counts are the benchmark where back in the day it was – and, you know, I think some of these guys back in the day had more complete games than you'll see in the major leagues nowadays in two years. One guy will have more complete games than two years full of big leagues. Uh, and that inc includes every staff in the big leagues, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. Um, so there was a stretch of four years. Um, and I got into this actually last night uh, during a ball game. It was, you know, Randy Johnson from 99 to 2002. 
And that was four consecutive Cy Youngs. Randy Johnson, his complete game totals in that four-year stretch, 12-8-3-8. And he was over or flirting with 350 strikeouts each of those four years. He was over or flirting with 250 innings each of those four years. And you think reign of pure dominance. You think end of Sandy Koufax's career, which is way before our time, all three of our time. Then you've got Randy and Pedro kind of in that same time span. And then DeGrom right now, but he can't stay on the field like you're saying. Is it like, was Randy the most dominant pitcher you've ever seen or what you're seeing from DeGrom right now more dominant than that? I would say Randy, just because like you said, he's out there 33 times a year, 35 times a year, probably back then it was 35 starts and yeah. he made them, you know, uh, and he was, very imposing physically, you know, he's six foot 10, uh, almost looked like he was shaking hands with you and he released the ball. It was so, it had a weird arm angle, like low three quarter coming at you with, uh, you know, I, I was victim of a, a George Brett day off when we were in Seattle and uh, Randy Johnson just come over from the expos and uh, George got Randy itis that day. And I got to play first base and I could see why, man, I was shaking my boots. I thought, my head was in jeopardy on the other side of the plate. I can't even imagine when a lefty at that time when he had no control was because he's throwing a hundred literally legitimately a hundred with a wipeout slider and didn't really know where it was going. So as a lefty, no chance would I step in that box against him. I, I can't imagine. And, and we were talking about the numbers not so long ago because he's somebody that in the minors had no clue where it was going. And then even in the early parts of the big leagues had no idea. And then really just turned into such a, a, a really solid pitcher. I want to ask you about we talk about how swings and misses and, and the way the game is trended. And you know, a lot of that is because there's a lot more Randy Johnson esque players who either throw it 10 feet high or throw you a hammer breaking ball that gets the outside corner or a fastball with ride in on your hands. And it's like it's either walk or strikeout. How much of it? is on I guess how much of the onus is on hitters because we talk about you know, all you hear about is exit velo and launch angle but also you just talked about it fastball velos are up five miles an hour across the board breaking balls are nastier than ever and and you're seeing change-ups in the low 90s stringing together hits is as hard as ever baseball is getting better uh, at the bat to ball department strikeouts are going down and we're kind of seeing a, a cycle a little bit but how much of the, of the onus is on hitters and approach versus just pitchers being so damn nasty in your opinion? I think it's, it's gone a little bit of both ways. Um, but I think the whole, you know, stat cast era has put a premium on hitting the ball in the air and uh, not making contact as much as, you know, back in when I played, I hated striking out. I didn't want to strike out. And my job a lot of times to put the ball in play so I could advance a runner uh, with a guy on second base. I always look to get a guy over with. And if there's a guy on third base, I'm trying to get a ball in the air so I can get a sack fly. I mean, there was stuff I was trying to construct with my at-bats every single time, but I don't see that anymore. You know, I go watch Griffin's games, even in the minor leagues. I see guys on second base with one out uh, or nobody out in the seventh inning in a tie game. And there's no uh, even attempt at trying to hit a ball to the right side of the field to get that guy over they're, they're just swinging, swinging, swinging like crazy. They're striking out. And I'm like, to me, it's just like baseball's put such a premium on the long ball and hitting home runs and power that the art of hitting has kind of gone to the wayside. You couple that with the ability of the pitchers nowadays with the added velo and with the added velo becomes more snap on the breaking ball. So you got bigger breaking balls and harder breaking balls and, 
Uh, I think the approach with the hitters has lagged a lot behind what the advancement in pitching has become. And I think it will catch up eventually because I think this, um, you know, these numbers of, of trying to hit the ball in the air so much and, and trying to do damage when you're not really a person that's supposed to do damage. Um, and it'll be more productive if you're on base uh, rather than uh, not trying to hit fly balls and, and, and making outs that way because anybody can catch a fly ball. It's put it on the ground. There's, there's a lot that can happen. So uh, I think we're going to trend down a little bit. Like you said, last couple of years, two years ago was the most strikeouts and the lowest average you've ever seen in the history of the game. And uh, I think it's trending up a little bit now, but uh, it's going to take some time. So uh, I'm 24 years old, arms 25 years old. And I think we both try to do our due diligence on, you know, learning how baseball functioned in eras prior. And you're never going to be able to compare O'Neill Cruz and Babe Ruth. Don't do it ever. But the way that you can kind of compare eras across baseball is by style of play. And the way that I've kind of settled on it is guys are more hungry to set the world record in the 100-meter dash than the mile. And it feels like we're losing some of that gracefulness. There's more brute force in baseball than ever before, but I think there's less art form in pitching, less art form in hitting, right? Do you feel like the game has gotten a little bit too obsessed with explosiveness and that all-or-nothing approach? How do we get back to having baseball and aspects of baseball as an art form like it was when you were playing? That's, that's a great point. Um, it is kind of a, a jam it down your throat mentality right now, both on the mound and, and at the plate. And, um, you know, I miss the game the way it used to be. Well, the way I played it, the way it used to be played, you know, with base running and stealing bases, you don't see hardly any stolen bases anymore. The base running is atrocious. You got guys that just go station to station. They even, they're not even looking to take that extra base. They're not even trying to be aggressive and, and go uh, from first to third or, or from home to second on a bobbled ball or anything like that. That's to me is where the beauty of the game was, where the guys are trying to look for that, just that little hiccup and take advantage of it so they can get to the extra base and they could score that run. You know, I think it's become more of an individualistic game right now. I'm going to get my stats. I'm going to get my things, my home runs, my whatever. And Hey, if the wins come, the wins come. But we were taught to win games. We we are all collectively trying to put this machine together to win baseball games. And um, you know, I miss that. I miss watching the way a game's constructed. And you know, and now with the universal DH, you don't see the managers in the National League being able to make their moves strategically anymore. It's just, hey, I'm gonna throw my guys out there and you know, pinch hit every once in a while. And you can't even make you know pitching matchups hardly anymore because. The, yeah. the clock's on and you go, oh, now you got to face three batters. And uh, it's 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 a much different game, both rule-wise and style of play than when I played. Yeah. I will say, and th there's an encouraging aspect to this as well, is, you know, we're seeing some of the best teams in baseball. We talk about it being cyclical. Uh, some of the best teams in the win-loss column are, are teams that strike out the least. Uh the Cleveland Guardians are first in that department. Uh, they're probably going to be a playoff team at 18% strikeout rate. But the New York Mets, and that's a team I, I always highlight because the New York Mets are, are full of guys that grind out ABs and get on base. And they've got their big boppers in the middle, Pete Alonso. But even Pete Alonso is not really a big strikeout guy anymore. Like He's really cut that down. Uh, they're second least at 19.7% strikeout rate. Then the Houston Astros checking at third. I mean, we're talking about three of the best teams in baseball. And then you look at the Dodgers, they're 11th. It's not like they're a, an all or nothing team there as well. Uh, 
Yeah. How confident are you? I mean, you've seen baseball, you know, go through a lot of different phases and, you know, sometimes it takes getting to the point and to the brink of what you're talking about with the frustrations of some of the lost aspects of the game to, to kind of get back to where you need to be and, and find that middle ground. I think power is obviously going to be really important always because it's easier to hit one home run than multiple doubles or a double and two singles or whatever it may be. But I think we're seeing a little bit of a balance out here. How confident are you that baseball can kind of be cyclical here and come back around a little bit to being more of that balanced sport uh, that, that we saw before? Um, <clears throat> I see it a little bit. You know, I think uh, the jump into analytics, I don't know, seven, eight years ago was immense. Like everyone just jumped into it and, and just put so much emphasis on, I mean, I think like the Astros just – totally blew apart their scouting department. It's all, yeah. it's all computer stuff uh, after a while, but, um, but then you saw teams that, that still had a good mix of both human elements on the field, out in the field, scouting players, because, you know, a computer can't tell you makeup. A computer can't tell you uh, what a guy does in a certain situation, how good a teammate is he. Um, and all these things are very important to, if I were constructing a team, what I look for in a player. If I'm looking at a guy that's just on the computer, man, he's going to light up your, your stat sheet or no, is he going to be a good teammate? Is he going to help out the young guys in the clubhouse? Is he going to, you know, uh, go pout in the corner or is he going to uh, get on somebody for not making a play out in the field? You know, that's, that's the kind of player I want along with the skill set. Um, and I think it's getting back there slowly. Uh, but I don't know if we'll ever see that kind of game again, that uh, was played 20 years ago. It's crazy. We're entering a new frontier. Uh, Jeff, you know, last because, one. Well, look yeah. at the rule changes. You know, uh, you can't knock over a catcher anymore. You can't take out a second baseman anymore. Um, these rule changes have literally changed the game. Yeah. And, you know, we're doing all these things to keep people safe. And we're we're trying to cut down uh, time of game, which I think the, the time of game are still longer than they've ever been, where they put all these measures in to try and shorten it, but nothing's happening with shortening it because no one's throwing enough strikes. You know, if you get the ball on the mound and, and throw strikes, things happen. The, your game's going to be under three hours. So um, seeing it firsthand in, in AAA with this pitch clock and just being around it every day, I can, you know, certainly testify to that. And I know that Griffin, your son, can as well, being in AA with the Marlins. Um, I think the real time of game and the perceived time of game are very different. The yeah. Indianapolis mm -hmm. Indians played a game in Charlotte earlier this year where there were 17 combined walks, and the game still ended at under three hours. So thank God for the pitch clock in that regard, right? Like right. you got a sub-three-hour game with 17 walks. That game was so miserable because there were 17 combined walks. Right. So do you feel like it has to do with the actual style of baseball that's being played? If the style of baseball was a little bit better, less people would be complaining about time of game? Um, I think so. Yes, for one. And I went to the same thing. I went and saw Griffin in Pensacola, and it was one of those games where, you know, a lot of uh, uh, walks and and just delay, whatever. And I thought, damn, that's a long game. But it was under three hours, and I'm like, holy crap. And he said, that is the longest game we've played, like, by far. <laughs> and I'm like, it wasn't even over three hours. He's like, that's the only game close to three hours we played all season. Yeah. And the next game was like 219. The next game after that was 221. And, and, but they were, they were offensive games. It was eight to six or whatever. In those games you would expect, hell, we got in the big leagues, three to one games that not that many walks are still three hours and 20 minutes long. It's like, damn, if you're not going to have offense, <laughs> at least make it a quick game. You know, when Greg yeah. Maddox pitched, we were out of there in two hours every single time. <laughs> 
Yeah. That's that's the one guy I actually wanted to ask you about before we before we call mm-hmm. this because there's there's a kid that Jack actually wrote this this story up and it was awesome about how George Kirby is basically everything that that baseball needs. He's throws a hundred, but also pounds the strike zone, walks nobody, works quickly, ton of fun. We're seeing more pitchers start to work quickly because a, a lot of infield coaches have really emphasized how much that keeps your your infield on their toes. And again, it's, it's something that we're starting to see make its way back into baseball again. You don't see the human rain delays, at least as starters. The relievers are still kind of human rain delays. But we're seeing starters start to work quicker, especially in the minor leagues. We, we saw some guys really work really quickly. Uh, but Greg Maddox, I mean, the way he pounded the strike zone, but also was still so hard to hit. I know that was a guy that, that you saw a decent amount of because he was in the division. And then, you know, also you both had very long careers. Can you just talk a little bit about what made Greg Maddox so difficult and so special outside of maybe the, you know, the obvious of he hit his spots? Well, he had like nine pitches, like literally he could do whatever he wanted to with a baseball. It was it was insane. I mean, you've seen the replays of some of these plays, you know, they've, they've shown recently on Twitter or whatever, and uh, the amount of movement he can get on a fastball. And then he's got a crazy curveball. He could, but he threw it three different speeds. And then, you know, he, he cut his fastball and then slider with a fastball and then sink his fastball and then really sink a fastball and then throw four seam with his fastball. He, he had, you always, always, you couldn't sit on any single pitch with him because everything was different. And even if it was coming at the same plane in the same location, he'd put three inches more movement on it. So it's off the barrel. You know, you think you got it. And then it's on your, on your label, you're cracking a bat rolling over to shortstop. Um, you know, the rare mistakes that he made, you had to hit him or else, you know, I, I hit well off him average wise, but I didn't do any damage off of him. I just, I got, I found a lot of holes, you know, a lot of soft line drives, um, you know, I hit over 300 off him, I think, but, uh, it was a very soft 300, man. Um, Jeff, last one for me, you know, you are a baseball dad and I've talked to a lot of baseball dads. I, I see this across sport too. I've talked to a lot of college basketball coaches about this actually, that, you know, were good players back in the day. They say they get way more stressed coaching a game or watching their kid. What are your stress levels like watching your son versus when you were playing, knowing that you have zero control over what Griffin does? I know, right? Zero control. Maybe that's why I didn't have much stress when I played because it it was under my control. So now I don't have control and it drives me insane because I know exactly what he's going through. You know, when he struggles, I struggle. When he hits a home run, I am elated, you know, and I know exactly how that feels. So um, it's much, much more difficult watching your kid play and trying to advance to a level that, you know, I was fortunate enough to get to and especially in this market. So now he's got the name on the back in this market, yeah. uh, which adds a little bit more, you know, something on his mind possibly. So I, I've always, and Arm and I have talked about this, uh, ad nauseum. It's, I don't ever talk mechanics with him. I always talk, you know, approach and mechanic as far as how to set up in a bat and how to uh, think about situations. And, you know, and I've done that for a long time with him because he's always had a great swing mechanically. You can't do much with that swing mechanically. It's as bad as good a swing as you're going to see. So I always just work on taking out that mechanical uh, issue in your mind. So you can use your vision and your feel more so. And I think that's, 
what's lost a lot in this mechanical baseball with analytics is yes. we've lost the feel of hitting how to manipulate my barrel so I can get it to the ball, yeah. uh, regardless of the pitch, regardless of where my hands are. Yeah. You know, guys are, if I'm late and I I'm swinging hard, no matter what, well, if I was late, I would have to pinch my hands in an alligator arm and I'm still trying to get the barrel to the ball regardless of where my lower half went, because I still think I could not do damage, but I could still get a hit. Yeah. These guys want to do damage and that's all they want to do. I'm doing damage or I'm not doing anything where I want to do damage, but if I was fooled or if I'm late on a pitch, I'm still going to try to get a hit. So I'm still trying to manipulate my barrel to get the sweet spot on it. So at least I can get a base hit, which uh, is a big difference in the hitters of now compared to 25 years ago. Especially when we're in a in a game where it's it's very identity driven, right? Like he's a power hitter, so you better be a power guy, right? Or this guy does this, so he better lean into that. Whereas you know, being that well rounded hitter, being that well rounded player, whatever, is not as much prioritized. But again, is we looking at prospects, and and I do my my prospect write ups and things like that. I always call that swing malleability, and and we're seeing you know some of the best hitters are guys that can adjust and manipulate that barrel and do those things, but. At the same time, when you're capable of hitting the ball as as far as Griffin is and some of these <clears throat> top end power hitters, that's kind of what you're encouraged to do from the get go. Because it's like, what's his max exit velo? What's his 90th percentile exit velo? What's his average exit velo? How far is he hitting the ball? Those are the things that get you scouted. That's what starts a perfect game. It starts at the bottom level. You could point out the same things in, in basketball, too. Right. All these kids in AAU, you think they're working on defense? No, they're 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 working on their offensive game. They're they're working on the three point shot and getting to the rim like that's the way it is. Yes. It's all about the threes. But, uh, you know, the, the last thing I want to ask you from, from our perspective is, you know, we we, we did do a lot of, uh, you know, crit, like just diving into the the gaps in the game now. But there are a lot of really awesome things about the game. And I think the number one thing that we're seeing is the influx of young talent. Your son included. I mean, you'll be the first to, to tell me that Griffin is capable of doing things on the baseball field that, that you couldn't even imagine doing uh it, like his opposite <laughs> field yeah his opposite field power is is more than you know most guys pull side power and we're seeing guys at the big league level do things we've never seen i mean you talk about mike trout who i know is your favorite and, and a lot of other people's favorites to watch but i mean julio rodriguez who just came up with the mariners a guy that just flies it's the crap out of the ball does, plays great defense like we're seeing so many dudes that are capable of ridiculous things and that are so fun to marvel and watch I, what do you think about this influx of young talent and just the incredible athletes that we're seeing take over this game? And who are some of your favorites to watch? Just that. I mean, uh, the athletes of today are leaps and bounds, I think, better athletes than there were 25, 30 years ago. It's just, you know, there, there are so many um, baseball, youth baseball is so much more competitive. So you're seeing a high level of youth baseball early, early on. These guys have to get better just to be able to compete at that level. I, I had little league. I played little league like four months a year. That's it. That's all I played was little league. You know, then I went to my high school season. I played high school by 20 some games in high school. That's what I played. Now these guys are, which is a good and bad. It, it's way they're not able to be kids and go play other sports and do things, but they're going to get much better at baseball because that's all they're doing from age 10 until whenever they retire, you know? So uh, you see how much better they are, how much more powerful they are. Um, the training techniques, uh, the nutrition, all this stuff is leaps and bounds over, you know, and I've told you this when we were my first big league spring training with Kansas city, we had off the training room. There's a room that had one 
multi-station universal gym with the pins, you know, and the plates. And it was a pull down, it was a leg press and it was a bench press. And they might've had a, a pull up thing. That was our weight room. That was it. They discouraged weight lifting because they thought it tightened you up and made you slower. <laughs> That's where I started, you know, and nowadays that is of course an absurd uh, way to look at athletes and, and training, but that's what we had. So, um, you know, the players today are just, uh, you know, they're marbles. They're marbles to look at and, and watch play and the arms and the speed and the power, the power is ridiculous. And, but I still would love to see that mixed with the old style game and, and have them come together and do that. Then you see, you know, you see a Griffey and you see some of these superstars that we had when I played that, that knew how to do all those things, but still had that ridiculous athletic ability that would wow everyone at the same time. The, uh, the first thing on my agenda every day in a ball last year was unlocking the door to the weight room at 9. AM when I showed up every day. So that's what these guys got to do. It's crazy. And, yeah. and if you don't, you're, you're falling behind Griffin works out constantly. I, I admire his worth ethic, work ethic, like crazy. Uh, it drives me nuts. Sometimes I just want to like hang out and it's always got to go. <laughs> yeah, work so out. I, I yeah. got to eat some broccoli and work out. Yeah, seriously. But uh, this was awesome. Niner, thanks for taking the time. And and we're going to do a mailbag next week uh, if you're up for it. So for outside the box, we're going to be taking in any questions. So if, if you want to hear more from from Jeff here and, and want to ask him some more questions, Keep an eye out for our Twitter uh, at Just BB Media. We're going to, you know, put out a mailbag at some point over the weekend or early next week. Collect your questions for Jeff, and and we'll have that episode on Outside the Box with Jeff Conine, which has been so much fun getting your thoughts. I, I love talking to you about the Castellanos reporter incident, the Tatis situation. Yeah. Like we talk about a lot of active things because it, there's nobody better to ask than someone who's been there. And, and I love the perspective you bring, but also your recall from, I, you can remember almost every single big moment, every game. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and I think that was a big part of your success as well is that elephant memory you got. So looking forward to recording you with you next week. Uh, we'll have those questions coming in and uh, I'm really glad we were able to get uh, Jack in on this now and get you on the just baseball show. Hey man, always love talking shop. And uh, you know, like Jack said, it's my life. Baseball is my life. And, and I love talking about it. It's the only thing I really know. Just ask my wife. 